Hallelujah, Christ is risen. You didn't quite get that all right. You had different versions, but you got the feeling, right? Last Sunday was this glorious celebration of the resurrection, and we, we say those words because there is a proclamation that we are making in that. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. There's a reason why we are rejoicing. He has triumphed over sin and death and the enemy. And, and so we have this proclamation that actually is to mark our days, mark our lives, this proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. And that proclamation is one of rejoicing for what he has accomplished, but also it can take on, at times, a feeling of a, this is a statement of defiance. That in a world marked by chaos and death, we know that he has conquered death. In a world where the enemy seems to sometimes win the day, we know he has won the victory over the enemy. In a world where even with my own sins I might struggle, I know that he has conquered sin. There can be a defiance in that that is, that is not denial. It's not saying, I'm just going to pretend those things aren't true. I'm just going to put on my rose-colored glasses and just be one of those real nice Christian people who always says good things. It's not that kind of shallowness that is looking at, we're looking at. There's actually something deeper that is happening here. There's a reorientation so that we see things more fully for what they are. And this is what we find happening in the epistle reading today in First Peter. As Peter is writing to Christians, and he is writing to Christians who are undergoing a lot of suffering, that they're under a time of trial, they're in a time of struggle. And he says to them in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Worthy of praise. The Father is worthy of praise. Why? Because in his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Now that language, new birth, is very intentional. He's, he's drawing on what Jesus said in John chapter 3, that you cannot see the kingdom of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, unless you have been born again. And, and that language of being born again, it's a very specific language. Because it's not about um, a gradual progression. That you, you start off here, and, and you just you slowly work harder to get better and better. That there is something different than is happening here. We tend to have a sliding scale of righteousness, right? So we sort of think there are really bad people, and there are really good people, and, and we try to find our place on that, on that sliding scale. And, and so we might say, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as Nancy, so I'm, I'm going to move this way a little bit, but, but maybe I'm not as good as Sarah. So we, we try to find our place by looking at others. And, and then we think, if I do good things, if I pray every day, if I tithe, Ben asked me to say that. No, just kidding. <laughs> if I teach Sunday school, then I'm moving up, I'm becoming more righteous, and God loves me more. And when I... Don't tithe. you go again, Ben. When... Um, when I sin, when I don't read my Bible, then actually I'm moving down the scale of righteousness and God must love me less. That is not the biblical understanding. This is the, the language of being born again. Is, it's not something that is a gradual change or progression. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 
There is no gradual moving up or down. Either we are in Jesus and we are the righteousness of God, or we're not. There are just two positions. So this is language of being born again. It's speaking about a radical change in who we are. We move from being those who are enemies of God to being those who are children of God. We move from those who were um, those who loved the darkness, as Jesus says in John chapter three, to being the light of the world. Or even as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five and verse eight, he says, "Once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord." It's not just once you were in darkness, although that was true. It says you were darkness. When we were in the dominion of darkness, we were darkness. And now we are light in the Lord. We move into the kingdom of His Son, and we are the light of the world. We are the light of the Lord. It is looking at this fundamental change in who we are. And this is a gift of grace. This is His great mercy. It is His kindness and His compassion. This movement from being unrighteous to being righteous is not something that we attain by our own effort. It is not something that, that we are smart enough to figure out, therefore we say we know this to be true, and boom, we're, un, we're righteous. It is not something that is dependent on what we do. When we begin to think that it's something that, that is either done because we earn it, because we're good enough, or that um, I'm smart enough and I've figured out this is, I think I'll give this Christianity thing a try, it sounds reasonable to me. Actually, there's nothing reasonable about it, if you think about it. This is the work of God in changing us. If we begin to think it's by our efforts, we take the good news, the gospel, and we reduce it to try harder. Try harder to be good. Try harder to think right things. Try harder to do the, to, to do the right things. And I don't know about you, but does anybody else find try harder to be good news? There's no good news in try harder. The gospel is not a proclamation of what we must do. It is a proclamation of what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. It is a gift of grace. It is something that we receive. This is what is guaranteed in his resurrection from the dead. And it is the foundation for what we have a few verses later, which is where I'm going to focus, at least in, in content, verses 8 and 9 of First Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And now what's tied to that is, is saying, for you are receiving uh, the end product of your faith. You are receiving uh, the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice he is not saying that, that you are now striving for the salvation of your souls. Again, this is a gift. This is something that we receive. This is, this is dependent upon what God has done for us. And knowing that, knowing that this is not dependent on me, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, trying to make it work, trying to climb that mountain on our own, knowing that it's something that is the gift that we receive from God, it says that we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Hallelujah. <laughs> How many of your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, do you think, look at you and say, man, that person is filled with just this inexpressible and glorious joy. How often do you think people look at the church 
and say, filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I want some of that. See, often this inexpressible and glorious joy that is to mark our days is missing. And I confess, I find it missing in my own heart as well. This is not me standing on one side saying, bad you, now be joyful. Um, That doesn't work, does it? (laughs) Often what is missing is this inexpressible and glorious joy. Nancy and some of you who know this, when we travel to Rwanda, what you find often there is that people who are filled with joy, and and there's just a joy in their life, and the joys that go about their work, and a joy that marks their worship, and, and we begin to look at the contrast and say, these people have nothing. And look at the joy they have. And we come back here and we say, um, we've got everything. And look at the absence of joy that we have. Now the problem is that we can look at that and say, okay, therefore I know to be joyful, I just need to get rid of all my stuff. And, and it doesn't work, then you're just poor and miserable, because that's, you're actually looking at it the wrong way. We're misdiagnosing what is missing. See, often when we look at, um, we think about joy, we tie it to our situation, we tie it to our circumstances. So this is my circumstance that is keeping me from being joyful. If this were fixed, then I'd be joyful. It's maybe it's a relationship uh, with a spouse or a child or a co-worker that, that this relationship has me all knotted up inside. If this relationship were fixed, I would be joyful. Or we might think that it has to do with, with our resources. We're feeling the, the burden of having to pay for bills and, and do the things that we need to do. And, and we begin to think that, that if my finances were different, if my resources were different, then I would be joyful. Or, um, we might think of it as our health. You know, if my knees stopped hurting, then I could be joyful. If, if I didn't actually have to deal with the fact that I'm not a young man anymore, and I do things and actually pay for them differently, now then I would be joyful. Hallelujah. <laughs> or we might look at our children. And say, if my child would make the right choices, if they would do what I think they should do, right now they're making bad choices and they think they're doing fine, but I see they're heading down the road of ruin. If if they would just do things better, then I would be joyful. See, it is a misdiagnosis that we, we begin to look at our circumstances and we think, if our circumstances change, therefore we can there be joyful. And what is missing in this is that actually we are called to choose joy in each of those circumstances. That as we look at our resources, we are to choose joy in that. As we are engaged in relationships or interacting with our children, we are to be those who are choosing joy. See, we think that our circumstances determine our joy. So change my circumstance, change my joy. But the reality is is that actually joy changes our circumstances. You see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth, and he says in verse 2, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They were in the midst of very severe trial. And, and you would think, okay, very secure trial, no joy. 
But in that very severe trial, it says that their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty, it welled up in generosity. In fact, when you read this, um, this is the pastor's dream. I'm just going to say the pastor's dream is because what you find here is that it says that they're begging for an opportunity to give. You want to make Ben have a good week? Just knock on the door and say, I just I need to give some money, right? I mean, they're, they're begging for an opportunity to give out of their extreme poverty in the midst of a severe trial. And so you can see that, that their circumstances, severe trial, extreme poverty, would certainly begin to say, listen, you don't give because you need to hold on to what you have because you don't have much and you don't know what is coming tomorrow. But Paul makes this connection between this and this overwhelming joy and this rich generosity. So the way I would say it is, this overwhelming joy changed their circumstances. So they were not impoverished. Now, did their, their financial situation change? No. It's not that they had more, more money. It's not that, that we're just going to choose to be happy and God's going to flower and, sh- and shower down on us. Just gold falling from heaven. Their, their circumstances didn't change. It's not that they had then more money and now they can say, yeah, we've got a lot, so we have access and so we can give this away. It's that the choosing of joy, being overwhelmed with joy, actually helped them to stand in who they were. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We are the sons and daughters of the, of the one who made all that is. And all that we have is his. And so there was this overwhelming um, joy and this, this welling up of generosity. It is something that, that when we are choosing joy, that we are then understanding and looking at our life and our circumstances in the right way, with the right foundations. Again, it's not that their circumstances change, it's that their understanding of their circumstance, their understanding of who they were in that circumstance, that that begins to change. And so they are choosing joy instead of choosing desperateness, instead of choosing cynicism, instead of choosing um, stinginess. Joy is not something that we can create. Right? It's not something that we can manufacture. I'm not saying that, that now your task as good Christians is, is in the morning wake up and say, I will be joyful, I will be joyful, I will be joyful. We don't have the ability to actually produce this joy. When we try, we just end up with a silly giddiness that the world knows is shallow. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sometimes I like to leave that one off. Um, But it's it's what the Spirit of God produces in us. We don't have the ability to create it. We don't have the ability to manufacture it. 1 Chronicles 16, 27 says very clearly, God is the source of our joy. So when I'm saying choose joy, I'm not saying that, that try to create it or try to manufacture it. This is not um, fake it till you make it. There is nothing Christian in that. This is not saying that, that now you've got this burden and this responsibility uh, to perform and do your part and be joyful. And maybe another analogy would help. Um, who forms the body of Christ? Well, we are part of it, but who makes it? Who makes the church? God makes the church. We don't make the body of Christ. 
We can't manufacture it. It is actually God who makes us into his body. It is a work of the Spirit. And so we don't create it, we don't manufacture it, but we step into it. We can be a part of it. We choose to step into and be a part of the body of Christ. It is the same thing with, with joy. It is not something that we have the ability to create. It's something that we choose to step into, that we know that this is what God has given, what he has done. When we aren't choosing to live in the joy, and again, when I think joy, just, just sort of put away sort of the, the pictures of, of somebody who's had a lobotomy and they're happy and the world around them doesn't affect them and they're just sort of always joyful. There is something rich and deep in this joy. The kind of joy that we find in Scripture is not incompatible with tears. Uh, where there is a lament and worship and joy that can be found together, and we'll find that in a minute when we go to the psalm. Uh, but, but there is a joy that is actually something that's deep and something that orients us, something that anchors us in this world. When we are anchored in this joy, the world all of a sudden feels pretty expansive, doesn't it? When joy is missing, our world gets smaller and smaller, and it closes in, and we become sort of cramped, that, that I would say that joy and expansiveness go together. That, that joy always brings expansiveness. Have you ever had that experience of, of feeling closed in and, and things are difficult, and all of a sudden it's like the Lord lifts you out of that, and you feel this expansiveness, even though your situation hasn't changed? Do you know that feeling? That is, a, that is a piece of what it is to know his joy. Because there is an expansiveness that we have in the midst of a situation. This is what we find in the psalm that we had today, in Psalm chapter or Psalm 16. When you look at this psalm of David, the first four verses are, are, are really David, um, he's pleading for God to rescue him. He is asking for God's rescue in a, in a t- place where he doesn't necessarily feel the expansiveness of God, where there isn't the sense that the circumstances make him feel like, I'm just going to worship and praise because look at how good God has been to me. What is interesting is that you have those first four verses where he's asking, Lord, keep me safe. You come to verse five. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. You are my portion. You are my allotted inheritance. This is going back to the, to the imagery you have in the book of Joshua when they entered the promised land and, and the land was divided into the tribes and then from the tribes they were then given to families. They had an allotment of land. There was a portion of the land that they had received. And, and there certainly is a sense of, of knowing on a spiritual level that that was meant to be a picture of the kingdom of God. Here are the people of God, under the rule of God, in the place of God. There certainly is that truth. But it's also, uh, the land was their place of life. I mean, that's where their crops came from. That's where you grazed your sheep. It was sort of the source of how they lived their life in this day. And so they were saying, Lord, you have given us this possession of this land. And David is saying, the land that I have been given, the, um, the allotment, the inheritance that has been given to me is God. We look at Exodus 19, and, and we know that, 
the Lord looks at his people and talks about us as his treasured possession, and that is true. But David is saying, uh, he's saying it's the opposite also, that he is my treasured possession. He is my inheritance. He is the allotment that has been given to me for life. He says, you are my portion and you are my cup. Uh, The cup was a symbol of destiny. Um, So your cup was what your lot in life was, your destiny. Think of of Jesus saying to the sons of Zebedee, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In other words, can you stand and have the destiny that I'm going to have? Or uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, may this cup pass from me, but yet not my will, but your will. May this destiny, this is what I came to do, to go to the cross, um, that he's saying, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. So this picture of, of that we see that the cup is this place of what our destiny is. It is a picture of, of what, um, what we expect in this life, what our lot in life is going to be. And David is saying that my destiny is God. And he is good. It's the same imagery that you find in Psalm 23 and verse 5. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. What David is saying here is that, you know, we wish this would say, Lord, you wipe all my enemies away and then you invite me to the banquet table. No, you, you give me this banquet in the midst of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even in the midst of the situation, I know that my, my cup overflows, that, that my destiny in you is something that is life and that it is, is good. So what David is saying in this psalm is, God is my allotment now. He is my he is the portion that has been given to me now. And he is my destiny in the future. And not just the future in the sense of the end of days. But he is my destiny tomorrow. He is my destiny later today. He is my destiny next, next hour, this next minute, this next second. He is my destiny. And he is good. His goodness is what I am destined for. And then he says in Psalm 16 and, and the end of verse 5, You make my lot secure. In other words, this, this glory that you have given me, that you are my inheritance, you are my allotment, you are my portion in life, and you are my destiny uh, now and every second into the future, that you are the one that makes this secure. He doesn't just say, I've given this to you, now it's up to you, don't blow it because you don't want to lose it, be good. He is the one that maintains it. He is the one that that actually, this gift that we are given, it doesn't depend on us, it depends on Him. But He is the one that that maintains it. And, And if we think that this place of expansiveness that David is talking about, if we think that it depends on us, guess what? It's not expansive anymore, is it? Because it's up to me. I've got, to, I've got to do something to make this right. If we live as if this expansiveness was up to us uh, to get it and to maintain it, then we will do one of two things. We will either take the expansiveness, the boundaries, and we'll shrink them into something that we can manage. I can control this little corner of the world, we think. And so we, we make our life much smaller, limited to what we think that we can control. We live in a, in a smaller story. Or 
We are just busy, 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 busy. We're always striving, we're always trying, we're always doing, trying to live into this expansiveness, trying to create this expansiveness, and we are giving into our pressure of performance where our hearts never experience expansiveness. And the Christian life then becomes just, I'm going to put my head down, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other, I'm just going to make my way through this world, and one day at the end of the days I'll be happy. But right now it's not so good, but I'm going to make it. And that is not what, what David is speaking about in here. His boundaries, you are the one who makes them secure. This is Jesus saying in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. David continues in verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Again, he's still looking at what is my portion and what is my destiny. He says that these have fallen for me in pleasant places. Um, this, is, this word carries a lot more than how we think of pleasant. Um, we think of pleasant sort of similar to the way we think of fine. Husbands, you know this. How do I look, dear? Fine. That's not a good answer, is it? It's never a good answer. It's a pleasant day. Uh, this pleasant, the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. There, there is a depth to this. There is a sense of just deep pleasure in this. Uh, when, when sometimes we, we begin to think that the holier that we are, the more that I'm faithful, the less pleasure I will have. Or if I have it, I'm certainly not going to let you see that I have it because I'm going to be holy, I'm going to be ascetic. And, and we begin to think that, that our life in Him doesn't have anything to do with pleasure. Now, the problem in our world is we get there because the enemy takes what is meant for our enjoyment and twists it so it becomes our God, so that we serve pleasure. But why did God give us taste buds? I'm serious. Because we're meant to enjoy. Right? There's meant, pleasure is something we're meant to experience as those who are part of his creation and those who are made in his image. So when he's saying that this is in a pleasant place, he is speaking something much deeper. It's speaking something of this, this taste and see that the Lord is good. That there is a pleasure and a life and a joy. So if you think about what are our boundary lines, they've fallen for us in pleasant places. When I think about that, the, the verse that always comes to mind is Ephesians chapter 3. I'll pick up in the middle of verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Where are the boundary lines that fallen for us? Look at how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God. In fact, you can't even comprehend how expansive it is. And yet, that immense love of God, the expansiveness that is beyond our ability to understand, is ours in Jesus. This begins to, again, give some shape to, um, surely I have a delightful inheritance. Again, I would say it's probably better to translate this, I have an inheritance of delight. If there is an expansiveness 
in knowing God's delight in his children. So, that's saying it generically, that's nice and safe. There is an expansiveness in experiencing God's delight in me. Experiencing for you God's delight in you. There is something that, that when we experience his delight in us, I don't know if some of you are thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I did yesterday, and so therefore God couldn't delight in me. And when we do that, we're falling back into the wrong place. We are falling back into my standing before God depends on me and not on Jesus. This is why um, I love in Zephaniah chapter 3 and, and verse I think 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. There is an expansiveness that comes from knowing God's delight in us. And that expansiveness comes from standing in who he has made us to be, knowing our identity in Jesus. This is why the Apostle John can say in verse 3 and chapter 3 and verse 1, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. This is an inheritance of delight. When we don't know that, guilt and shame and fear and insecurity and pride and striving begin to close in around us and our world shrinks and it gets smaller. So David then moves in Psalm 16 to this declaration of confidence in the Lord. You're not going to abandon me. That there is um, great joy now, that there are pleasures that I'm going to have with you in, in your presence. There's an experience of this now in the midst of this trial, and there will be also true tomorrow. He has a confidence in this. And, and this confidence leads him into worship. And this is one of the key things. When I say choose joy, well, how do we do it? Worship is, is one of the ways that we choose joy. It's because when we come into God's presence in worship, there is something that reorients our hearts. It begins to shape us so that we see things differently. That as we come into God's presence in worship, that we are no longer defined by what's missing in our lives, we become defined by what God has given us and who he is in our lives and who he has made us to be. There is something about giving thanks that begins to shape how we see ourselves, see God, and see the world. That's why we do this table every week. It's meant to reorient our hearts. Look at what he has done. He has invited me in that I will partake of the wedding supper of the Lamb, that, that, that we don't come slinking to this table, that he has given us a place. And in fact, if we look at the wedding feast of the Lamb, who is the honored guest at the wedding feast? The bride. And that's us. There is, a, there is something of reorienting us that comes, and, and what happens as we begin to stop and give thanks, as we look at who God is and what he has done, it begins to change how we see things. Because our tendency is, my tendency is, is that I look at the things in my life, and through those things I try to understand my world and everybody else, and I try to understand God. And when we come into his presence in worship, our, our eyes are lifted up and we see him. 
And through Him, we can see others. Through Him, we can see the circumstances in our life. And we see them differently. We might not understand. I'm not saying that gives full understanding. But they are seen in the context of this God of the universe who has rescued me and made me His own. And that I have an inheritance of the life. That He is my portion and He is my destiny. It is something that begins to to shape how we see ourselves and this world that is actually defined by grace. It's not that the problems are taken away. Sometimes they are not taken away. It is not that, that the issues that we face all of a sudden don't become issues anymore. It is that we experience His grace and His goodness and His delight and His faithfulness, and we understand that those things are actually deeper than our circumstances. And it begins to reorient us. So yes, Lord, I need you to rescue me. I need you to keep me safe. But the wonder, the joy of being uh, in your presence, the wonder and the joy that you are my inheritance, that you are my destiny now and every second in the future, the wonder and the joy that that we can be children of God, uh, this inheritance of delight, your delight in me, it pulls us into the larger story. And it pulls us into an expansive place. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So his good work in you, and good carries with it a sense of beauty and delight and abundance, it carries with it a sense of joy, that his good work in you, he will bring it to completion. He, he always finishes what he starts. He doesn't leave anything undone. So the, the goodness and the joy and the delight that he has begun in me, the beauty that he has begun in me, he will bring it into completion. He will do it. It is not up to me to get it. It is not up to me to maintain it. It is not up to me to secure it. This is what he does. For up to me, it would not feel expansive. This is why that, in, in, in First Peter, that, that first section, verse 3, where it really is laying out the glory of the gospel, is the, the foundation for knowing this joy. Because the, the more that we stand in the grace of what God has done for us, means the more that we are standing into who He has made us to be as His children, and the more that we know who we are in Him, the more that we can choose joy, because we know who we are in Him. The more we begin to choose joy, to, to give thanks and to worship, to step into His presence, the more that we have a deeper understanding of who we are in Him together. And this is something that, that we are to engage in together. It's the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. I can't choose joy apart from you. That we do this together, that we remind each other of what are the deeper truths. And I don't mean in the sense of a platitude, sir, I know it was hard for you to, to experience this loss, but God loves you. I mean, that doesn't help anybody. But it's, it's where you step in with them and say, I know the, the grief of this. I know this. And then you wrap your arms around them and you are the love of God. You're not a platitude, you're His presence. We need each other. We need the Word of God, and we need the Spirit of God. 
Jesus brings freedom from shame and guilt and condemnation. He brings freedom from the pressure to perform. He brings freedom from the burdens of trying to live up to somebody else's expectations. He brings freedom from striving and sin, the lies of the enemy. He brings freedom from everything that makes our world small and makes us restless. He conquered death. He broke the power of sin. He defeated the enemy when he rose from the dead. And if we are united to him, then that is ours. That victory is ours. And we can then know and begin to experience the joy of God in the midst of what our circumstances are. That we have this inheritance of delight. The more that we are soaked in the gospel, the more that we know and experience this joy of God. So when I look at my life and I see that that inexpressible and glorious joy isn't really there, I have to ask myself, what am I soaking in? What am I soaking in? I might be soaking in my circumstances. This is what's so. And I don't take the step to the deeper question of what is so. The Father is always inviting us into his kingdom. He is always inviting us into the joy of his kingdom. And in that inviting us into his kingdom, he is inviting us not just to come in, but to take our place in the kingdom. It's as we stand in who he has made us to be and do what he's given us to do that we begin to know and experience his joy more fully because it's rooted in what God has done for us and who he has made us to be and living out by grace what he has done. So this delight. Do you know his delight in you? Do you know that? Can you say, I know that the Father delights in me as his child? Not because I've earned it, not because I've done enough good things, but because Jesus has rescued me. Do you know the wonder of his rescue? Do you know the invitation to take your place in the kingdom of God? That there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is nobody who is extraneous. There is nobody who has a lesser role. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Do you know that invitation into the kingdom? And in that, know that He is your portion now and He and His goodness are your destiny now and every step of the future. We are called to take our place in the kingdom. You're called to know the honor and the joy of being his kingdom presence. Not because we try hard to do, because he has rescued us and made us his own by his grace. Receiving the result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Receiving. And in that we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we know that, uh, that if you could lift the lid off of the lives in this room, we would see struggle and delight, we'd see pain and rejoicing. Father, you are the Lord over us and over all these things. 
Father, where we have allowed our circumstances to define us, where we are defined by what's missing in our lives, we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would lift our eyes to you. You would know the glory of your gospel. That you are not telling us to, to bear down and try harder. That you are lifting us into life. That we would have a joy that is deeper than our circumstances. And the joy that comes from you. Not manufactured, not shallow. But the joy of your rescue and the joy of being made your children. You are our portion. And you are our destiny. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.